Welcome to the Rural Insights Podcast, where we explore rural actions and policies that impact Michigan's Upper Peninsula and beyond. This podcast is brought to you by the Rural Insights Institute, working to ensure that rural citizens and policymakers alike have the information necessary to make good decisions. If you'd like to learn more about Rural Insights, visit ruralinsights.org. Now, here's your host, David Haynes. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of our uh, Rural Insights podcast. And I am delighted to have with us today a friend, a good friend for many, many years, uh, Dr. Charles Ballard, uh, professor of economics at uh, MSU at Michigan State University, and uh, the author of many books, which I assume you can buy through Amazon uh, after you hear him talk. And if you can't find him, give me a call. I'll, I'll get it set up so you know where his books are. But uh, Charlie, glad you're with us today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. So I'd like to start out sort of with you and I went back and forth a little bit on some of this, and that is the, uh, uh, first let me ask, I guess, before I do this economic inequality, what's the situation, do you think, with the Michigan revenue stream and and therefore the, the budget? But what's your sort of look at this, especially with everything we're seeing with inflation coming on? Well, there's a temporary story and a, and a long-term story. Temporary because of the various uh, bills that have been passed in the last year to try to uh, uh, recover from COVID, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of money. And, and the state government is in the unusual position of having a pretty good revenue system, uh, revenue situation. But long-term, um, our revenues, ha- our revenue system has been deteriorating for for years. The fraction of our economy that we devote to state and local taxes in Michigan has been going down for fifty years, um, and that means less revenue available for supporting K through twelve education, for supporting higher education, for. Uh, um, Fixing the damn roads, as Governor Whitmer would say, for uh, for just a, a wide variety of, of social service, uh, for parks, um, you name it, our budget has been really stressed. So the long term situation, I, I think, is at least it's not nearly as favorable as I would like it to be, uh, given all of what I see as pressing uh, needs for investment by the government. But in the short term. Uh, because of the infusion of federal funds, uh, it's not it's not as dire. So one of the obviously for our listeners, we, we you know, this is about then how do you get more revenue? How do you right. get taxes? Um, and as I think we all know, Michigan has a very difficult time when they have to take taxes to the voters of passing new taxes, which is a normal inclination. Uh, but as the saying goes, somebody has to pay the bills. So, you know, for many years, uh, uh, and, and, and for those of you listening, Dr. Ballard has been a, a major person, scholar and person that talks to public policymakers about issues of taxation and revenue in, in, in Michigan. Um, the inequality uh, gap grows uh, between the rich and the poor, middle class and the very rich uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Gene Sperling uh, has a great book, Economic Dignity, 
which writes about the earned income tax credit and how it helps helps everybody uh, from his perspective. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the earned income tax credit and the graduated income tax ideas, which I think a lot of people believe will help this issue of inequality and will help the state with revenue, I assume? Sure. As background, um, really, the, the, this big increase in, in inequality began about 40 years ago. It has a variety of sources, lots of things played into it, some political, some uh, economic. Um, Michigan has not been a very different from most of the rest of the country in that in Michigan, what's happened is the high income have pulled away from the middle. Um, and the very high have pulled away from the high. The middle and the bottom haven't done nearly as well. And, and that's, that's actually worse in Michigan than in most other states. Uh, you know, we used to have a very robust and vibrant middle class. Um, uh, ordinary folks with just a high school education who were earning very, very good wages. And that's been hurt in recent decades. And the, the people at the bottom haven't done well. So uh, with that as background, my feeling is that uh, it would be wise to do more to help those at the bottom. And if you got to pay for it, maybe wise to pay for it by more from those at the top. Uh, so earn income tax credit, that's something that helps people at the bottom. It's different from the, the old style welfare programs, which just gave cash. Um, the EITC only gives benefits to those who are working and it is targeted at low-income families mostly most of the money goes on to low-income families with children relatively little to low-income folks who don't have children but most of it is low-income families with children and you can only get it if you work um, and so it is an incentive to work um, and uh, the evidence suggests that it's had a, a beneficial effects all over the place so we have a federal EITC. It was signed into law by Michigan's own Gerald Ford in 1975. And remember, he was a Republican. It was expanded under Ronald Reagan, another Republican, expanded again under George H.W. Bush, another Republican, and expanded at the federal level for the fourth time uh, by when Bill Clinton, the, a Democrat, was the president. But I say that because it's something that historically has had a lot of bipartisan support. Um, and many states have chosen to top up the federal EITC. Clearly, in Michigan, we don't have any control over what the federal government does, but we, if we want to augment that, we can. And in 2007, we passed a bill that took your federal EITC and boosted it by an extra 20%. Then in 2011, uh, there was a strong move to, to eliminate that entirely. Um, and it, which I think would have been a mistake. Uh, what we ended up doing was cutting it by more than half. Instead of a 20% top up, we have a 6% top up. If it were up to me, I'd go back to the 20% because the evidence the, and tons of evidence from sociologists and economists, lots of research has been done on this, including some at MSU, um, showing that it's had beneficial effects. So, so what is what what does six percent six up mean? What does that mean? Well, so for, for a typical household, uh, you might get a few thousand dollars from your EITC. 
let's say just to make the arithmetic easy that you you are getting $1,000 from the federal EITC. Well, back under the old system of a 20% top up, you'd get 200 extra dollars from Michigan. Under the 6% top up, you only get 60 extra dollars for Michigan. And there are some people, depends upon the number of children, depends upon a bunch of things, but some people are getting like four or 5,000 of federal EITC. And if you're in that category, then the drop from a 20% state top up to a 6% state top up was several hundred dollars, not trivial. Especially when you're talking about, we're talking about people generally, um, who, uh, the, the population that is affected by the EITC, these are not people who are driving around in Cadillacs. This is this is uh, lower lower income, lower wage uh, working Americans, um, many of whom have been struggling for decades to, to make ends meet. So, as you know, we we have a relatively high poverty rate in the Upper Peninsula, especially in the more rural areas uh, of the Upper Peninsula. Uh, the the child care tax credit. Uh, we hear a lot. We hear a lot from our listeners and our readers about the child care costs in the UP, which right. like are averaging out from our research at six, seven, eight hundred a month. I forget offhand. Uh, does does that tax credit would also help folks getting the EITC? Would it not? Yes, absolutely. And so, uh, what we've seen, and I think this is uh, uh, generally a, a positive trend in public policy in America at a, at a time when there have been lots of negative trends, but a positive trend is this increase in our efforts to help uh, low-income families with children. Because often it, the, the evidence, what do they spend the money on? In some cases, it allows them to fix their car so that they can get to work more reliably. In, in some cases, it allows them to um, have a little bit extra so that they can go go to a school or a community college or a training program, get an extra certificate, and and help work their way up the ladder. So, uh, lots of good good um, effects for both from the child care tax credit and for from the EITC. I, they're both things that I think are good ideas that we ought to at least keep and maybe expand. So the the, the child care tax credit from a tax policy point of view, also helps the middle class, that shrinking middle class that have children, right? They would probably- Right. Yeah. And most of these things are designed such that they they phase out mm-hmm. over, a, over a, a, a complicated schedule. But, but the, basically, here's the issue. If you want to give something to the low-income folks, but you don't want to give it to the rich, well, if you have a, an abrupt cutoff where all of a sudden you get one more dollar and you lose your $3,000 benefit, that, that causes problems. So what we do in, for many, including the, these programs, there's a gradual phase out, uh, which means that some people who we would call middle class get at least some of that. But the, the benefits have the largest effect down in what we would call lower middle or uh, working poor. So before we talk about the graduate income tax, talk go back to talk a little bit about what are the major 
impacts and causes of the shrinking middle class in Michigan? What have been those influencers that people should know about? What's caused that? A lot of things going on. But in Michigan, uh, one thing that really stands out is that we were 60 years ago, 70 years ago, we were so heavy into manufacturing and we were extraordinarily successful with it for several decades. But manufacturing has been shrinking as a percentage of the American economy since the 50s. Um, and so we, the sector in which we were specialized and it's not just, it's all sorts of manufacturing, but it's autos more than anything else. Um, that sector has not done well for, for decades now. And, and also labor unions have become weaker and those two things kind of go hand in hand because labor unions, their traditional strength was in manufacturing sectors. Um, and so what we've seen is a, a long-term uh, decline. It, it used to be, I mean, there, there, there are lots of stories of the economic miracle of the middle, middle of the 20th century of ordinary people, didn't have a college education, but went to work in a factory and, and um, made really good money. Those stories are very much less common now. Um, another thing, that I think contributed was we in Michigan, I think had been so successful with manufacturing 60 years ago that we got caught flat footed as the economy was evolving toward much more of a high tech, high skill, you know, in the auto factories, the people who used to do simple repetitive tasks, installing the left rear door handle 107 times an hour, those people have been replaced by by robots, and those robots are then operated by computer systems analysts. So it's a different skill set, and I think we haven't done nearly as good as we could have and should have to train our people for the new jobs that are evolving. So th those are some of the stories about why the middle class has struggled. It's struggled all across the country, but it, the struggles have been um, more in Michigan than in an awful lot of other places. I, I remember when I was a young man working in, in Washington and in the state legislature, which was a long time ago, I'm afraid I have to admit, the middle class was referred to as the family that worked in the auto industry and they had a house in a nice suburb in Southeast Michigan and they had a camp up north. Right. They had a pickup truck and a car and they lived the life. That That has sort of disappeared as the prototype of that. That's uh, uh, there are still people who have a cottage up north, yeah, right. but they but yeah. they tend it's much less common for it to be uh, somebody who works in the auto factory. It's uh, oh, yeah. So, what about the graduated income tax? How's it working? Would that help solve some of these problems? And how, in my view, a graduated income tax would help to solve some of the problems. Uh, let me first describe the, the federal income tax, which a lot of people are familiar with. It is progressive, which means that it takes a higher percentage from high income people than from low income people. And one way that it does that is that it has what are called graduated rates. The, the, the rate on, on the first so many dollars of taxable income is 10%. 
And then, then it jumps up to 15%, and then it eventually gets up to 37%. Uh, those numbers are much lower than they used to be. We used to have a much more progressive tax system than we have now, but still, that's how the federal system works. Um, more than 30 states have a system like that with graduated rates. You know, in many states, it's something like um, 3% on the first so many dollars of taxable income, and then it jumps up to five, and then to seven, and then something like that. We in Michigan, we're one of a handful of states that have a flat rate in the income tax. Um, it's 4.25% on every dollar of taxable income. So that's the same rate on an extra dollar for the um, millionaire CEO as for the, um, the, the uh, nurse's aide or the carpenter's assistant. So um, we have this flat rate and there are proposals out there. Um, and I've, I've worked on some of these campaigns to try to educate the public about it. There are proposals that could raise more money to go to schools and roads and stuff, and yet give a tax cut to 90% of Michigan's people. The way you would do that would be to reduce somewhat the rate on the ordinary folks income and then have higher rates on those who have higher incomes. Now, I should say this, this may come as a surprise to some folks, but I'm, I'm advocating for something that would not be great for my own pocketbook. I'm not going to tell you how much I make, but the fact for better or worse is that PhD economists have done pretty well in the last 50 years. So I'm, I'm in the income bracket where if we were to enact a graduated income tax, I would pay somewhat more. But I, I take a broader view of what's good. It's not just what's good for my bank account, narrowly defined. It's what's good for my the society in which I live. And, and that's why I, even though it would cost me, you know, depending upon the proposal, maybe a few hundred more dollars a year, it, these proposals, I think, um, would be good for the state. And in order in, 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 for Michigan to do a graduate income tax, it would have to be a vote of the people. That's right. The, the flat rate income tax is written into the 1963 Constitution. So in order to change that, you'd have to have a constitutional amendment. Now, there was a group of uh, activists who um, tried very seriously. They put a big effort into uh, getting it onto the 2020 ballot. But then along come, came COVID. And it's really hard to collect signatures if everybody's staying home. And so that didn't happen. Um, will it be on the ballot in 2022? I, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, but um, it, it has, we have talked, we have taken uh, public opinion surveys uh, and often public opinion uh, is, uh, it's usually favorable toward, towards these things. Of course, I think that, the devil is always in the details. Yeah. And uh, we know that if if a proposal ever reached the ballot, there are well-funded organizations that would spend millions of dollars on often misleading attack ads uh, to try to defeat it. And so whether it would pass, I don't know. But I do believe it has majority support. When was the last time? What was it on the ballot in the 70s? It, yeah, I I can't remember the exact year. I think it was uh, on the ballot more than once and it failed. 
uh, back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, we'd have to look up the year. Yeah. Well, I, I think our listeners see why uh, everyone refers to Dr. Ballard as the leading state expert on taxes and the economy. And and his voice is, uh, uh, and his knowledge is uh, heard by many. So I would... Uh, I would hope I can get you to come back again. Uh, I'd love to. Do these sessions of folks in the UP to hear about some of these issues. So That would be great. Uh, you well, know, I, we've talked about some interesting things here, but there's plenty of other stuff to talk plenty, about. I was just going to say, I got a whole list of things for <laughs> hours here, but I thought we'd break it up in chunks and, and we'll do another one real soon. Well, this has been a good, a good start. Thanks. Thanks, Dr. Ballard, and we'll see you soon. Okay. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Thank you. You've been listening to the Rural Insights Podcast, brought to you by the Rural Insights Institute, working to ensure that rural citizens and policymakers alike have the information necessary to make good decisions. If you enjoy our content, make sure to subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel. You can also subscribe to our weekly email newsletter by visiting ruralinsights.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.